Bona, Sakpase, Namaste, Upshin, Dubra Ultra, Asalaamu Alaikum, Hotep, Buenas Noches, Bonsoir. What is going on, everyone? I am so thankful and grateful to be able to be here this evening. Uh, wherever you are in the country, you know there has been a lot going on, and we're going to address one, or, one possibly two of those topics tonight. My name is Doriana Larrier of Larrier's Education and Resource Network, where I plan to help you grow. Welcome to the Doria Larrier Show. This is season three, episode 13. And as you saw in the advertisements, we are going to be speaking to Brother Michael Imhotep for the second time. I'm very pleased and honored that he is here tonight. So uh, let's talk about who's here. So Brother Michael Imhotep, the founder of the African History Network, the host of the African History Network show on 910, the Superstation, WFDF Detroit, historian, radio show host, researcher, lecturer, writer, He's a weekly panelist on the Roland Martin Unfiltered Daily Digital Show on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, providing political and historical analysis and the culture with Faraji Muhammad on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, both on Roland Martin's Black Star Media Network. He is a proponent of African-Americans reclaiming their history, culture, spiritual systems, and minds to empower themselves and to take control of their lives, their communities, and their one point $3 trillion economy. He focuses on understanding how politics impacts every aspect of our lives and understanding how to leverage our econ economics to enforce a political agenda. Welcome to the show, and this is Brother Michael Imhotep. Greetings, brother. Hey, Sister uh, Dorio. Thanks for having me back. How are you doing today? I am very blessed to be sitting down in my own chair. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Uh, so uh, we we are here for uh, another another chat. I'm very thankful. And uh, for the record, Brother Michael, Emil, the first time I asked Brother Michael, would he come? This, this time he said, Jarrell, I think I'd like to come on. I just had to say that. I just had to say oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is he asking me? Okay, good. Right. So let's get into it. So today we have, um, you asked to engage in a conversation that is very uh, hot on the presses during this this current week. This is Thursday, and I would like to acknowledge for the record, Brother Michael, and let me be clear. Are you wearing black? Is that suit black? Yeah, it's pinstripe. It's black it pinstripe. Yeah. It, so for the record, if this is Thursday. I have to put this little segue in. This is Thursday, and so this is uh, Thursdays in black, even though this is not the regular platform that I talk about that on. It is the day that ecumenicals and other loved ones across the world, uh, advocates and, and activists, uh, celebrate, or not celebrate, but yeah, celebrate the eradication of gender-based violence. And so we actually show up in black across the world. And so you just happen to have, but you were probably just listening to, you know, the ancestors say that gender-based violence is wrong and we will do what right. we can in, on all costs, at all costs, at all costs to eradicate it. So thank you very much. Right, right. No, um, I'm against gender-based violence and it's perpetuated in the society where you have white male patriarchy. And unfortunately, oftentimes in our media and in, in negative corporate controlled hip hop, we see white male patriarchy infused. It can be dressed in FUBU. It can be dressed up in red, black, mm, and green with a dashiki. Mm. Okay. It can be... It, it could be a dashiki and the it can be it can be dressed up in a in a, a minister's role with the collar, 
Okay, <laughs> so we see it manifest itself. <laughs> this is one of the problems with the civil rights movement. It it was there was sexism in the civil rights movement. You know, this is why uh, Ella Baker left the Southern Christian Leadership Conference after she was passed over for a permanent leadership position. And she helped co-found SCLC in 1957 with Dr. King and others. And Dr. King, you know, this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness, but Dr. King was a sexist. Okay. He did not believe that women belonged in permanent leadership positions. You know, William Monroe Trotter, who was a great man who was with the Afro-American Council, who helped co-found the Niagara Movement in 1905 with Dr. W.B. Du Bois. William Monroe Trotter was a sexist. He did not believe that women belonged in uh, in these organizations. So it, it, I think he and Ida B. Wells butted head because Ida B. Wells was in the Niagara movement as well. And mm -hmm. she, uh, 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 and she went on to be a co-founder of the uh, NAACP in 1909. So, and I would actually love to have a separate conversation about that. Right. That's an entire history lesson, but I know yes. you also have, you shared this and a lot of similar information and studies and uh, with some people south of where I am in New York and south of where you are in Detroit are thinking that it's not appropriate. Well, let's talk about it on another conversation because this is okay. a hot topic for today. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to introduce it and let's sort of, let's get into this. Okay. So the main topic I wanted to deal with, um, I dealt with this on my show Sunday night and is dealing with the four count indictment against Donald Trump. Uh, this is dealing with the uh, January 6th probe, okay? And this is extremely important because here you had an attempt uh, from a sitting president to overthrow the government, stay in power, uh, interrupt a bicameral, that means both chambers, House Representatives and U.S. Senate, a bicameral session of Congress that is mandated by the U.S. Constitution uh, to certify the uh, Electoral College votes. And he did this with the purpose of staying in power, okay, to prevent the peaceful transference of uh, power from one president to another. And uh, one of the uh, uh, four counts that he is uh, accused of violating by Special Counsel Jack Smith is the uh, Section 241 of uh, U.S. Uh, Penal Code, U.S. Criminal Code, which is the uh, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 was, uh, it came about during the Reconstruction Era, and it was designed to crack down on uh, violence perpetuated against African Americans uh, who were trying to vote, African American elected officials, and uh, white Republicans uh, and white Republican elected officials and interfering with their official duty, inflicting violence upon them, uh, uh, killing them, etc. Okay, so it's it's poetic justice, poetic justice that a white supremacist like Donald Trump is uh, being charged, not with just trying to uh, overthrow the government. And we'll go through and look at the charges. I'm going to sh show you some of the pages from the actual indictment because I have the um, I have the actual 45 page indictment here and we have uh, the PDF version of it as well from the New York Times. It, it, it's poetic justice that someone who tried to now in trying to overthrow uh, invalidate votes coming from uh, seven states. OK, 
including Michigan, uh, Arizona, Georgia, et cetera. This would ultimately invalidate 16.9 million African-Americans votes because 16.9 million African-Americans voted for Donald Trump. And this plays into a history of fighting, having political violence in this country and trying to suppress the votes of African-Americans and trying to suppress the political power of African-Americans, especially um, after slavery ends during the Reconstruction era, uh, which is 1865 to 1877, and then going into the Jim Crow era after that, when we have the state legislatures, especially in the South, rewriting their state constitutions to impose poll taxes, literacy tests, uh, property ownership requirements, a grandfather clause, which stated that if your grandfather could not vote prior to 1867, then you can't vote. And these were all ways to try to get around the 15th Amendment of 1870, okay? So um, the South has continuously fought back in different ways, especially against advancements that African-Americans have been making over the, over, over the past decades after Chattel slavery ends in 1865 when uh, Georgia ratifies the 13th Amendment, December 6, 1865. And the big lie that Donald Trump pushed that the election was stolen and that uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith is uh, charging Donald Trump uh, with uh, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit uh, to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. This is a continuation of a, an attack on African-American political power. And this was uh, the, the attacks that we saw in the attempt to overthrow, uh, to, to invalidate these votes. There was a racist backlash against um, African-Americans voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, one. But two, the January 5th, 2020 special election in Georgia, where you saw uh, Senator Raphael Warnock be reelected again and defeat Kelly Loeffler. And you saw John Ossoff, uh, the, the Jewish candidate, Jewish American candidate, he won as well, the two Democrats, okay? This added fuel to the fire. And we saw white supremacists strike back on January 6, 2021, uh, with the January 6, 2021 insurrection, which was spurred and inspired uh, by Donald John Trump, who is uh, the, the sole defendant in this case. Okay, so that sounds like the abstract. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so there are three, I just had it open, there are three three enforcement acts with well, actually four they're actually four uh actually four enforcement acts um if you want to let's look at the uh so it, 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 we can look at what the enforcement acts are uh first and is let's see here i have a slide here um is okay can i do the screen share Let me see something here. Let's uh, go here. I'm gonna do the screen share. Okay, let me pull us to the side. Okay, it says present. 
uh, share screen. Share screen to share screen works best with a share screen. I want to share screen and I want to, uh, I want to share the PowerPoint slide right here. Okay. This is the PowerPoint slide. Okay. Got it. Come up. Okay. Yeah. PowerPoint slide. Okay. Now this comes from Britannica.com, Encyclopedia Britannica. This comes from the Britannica.com, their, their, their website with their online encyclopedia. What were the force acts during Reconstruction? So Reconstruction is 1865 to 1877, the period right after the Civil War ends. Force acts in U.S. history, there were a series of four acts passed by Republican Reconstruction supporters in the Congress between May 31st, 1870 and March 1st, 1875 to protect the constitutional rights guaranteed uh, to African-Americans or Blacks by the 14th and 15th Amendments. 14th Amendment of 1868, which guaranteed citizenship rights. 15th Amendment, which uh, guaranteed the right to vote to African-American men. Um, 15th Amendment of 1870. The major provisions of the acts authorized federal authorities to enforce penalties upon anyone interfering with the registration, voting, office holding or jury service of blacks provided for federal election supervisors and empowered the president of the United States to use military forces, to use military forces to make summary arrests. Under the act of April 20th, 1871, so Congress passed the Ku Klux Klan Act April 20th, 1871, and it's signed in law by President Ulysses S. Grant. Under the Act of April 20, 1871, nine South Carolina counties were placed under martial law in October of 1871 by President Ulysses S. Grant using the Ku Klux Klan Act. This act and earlier statutes resulted in more than 5,000 indictments and 1,250 convictions throughout the South. He, he, he declared martial law on nine counties in South Carolina in October of 1871 to crack down on Ku Klux Klan violence, okay? Keep in mind, South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union, December 20th, 1860, and South Carolina is where the Civil War started, April 12th, 1861, with the attack on Fort Sumter, which was a military stronghold, a military armory. In subsequent Supreme Court decisions, various sections of the uh, of the uh, Force Acts were declared unconst unconstitutional, but it's still on the books, it's still intact, okay, and is being used to charge Donald Trump with crimes also. Um, and then, so you have this reference, so people can check this out. This is under Force Acts, F-O-R-C-E, Force Acts at Britannica.com. And then a, another uh, a good source uh, for this is, as well is from uh, history.house.gov. And let me take this one out. Uh, and actually sorry. I found the same in senate.gov, which is where I saw I found mine. And it just okay. stated the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 1871. Right. Okay. And then... Uh, I'll add that to the comments. Okay. And then we have... Um, I'm going to share it's uh it's a website okay, I wanted to share stream your broadcast which is 
Well, and, yeah, as I, I'll, right. and as you're making these references to the force, force acts, yeah. let's keep in context of how, uh, you know, the former leader, uh, you know, violated. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I, I, I here, I'm just gonna post this link. See if you can share it. I can't, I can't share it on my end. Okay. I can't find we'll it. Do. Uh, this, this link right here. This is to history.house.gov. Uh, history, history.house.gov is the history section of the U.S. House of Representatives. This is, uh, this article is the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. April 20th, 1871, it gives you background historical information on that. And then the last paragraph talks about uh, President Ulysses S. Grant signs the bill. And then in October 1871, Grant used these powers in several South Carolina counties, uh, demonstrating the willingness of the Republican-led federal government to take decisive action to protect the civil and political rights of the free people during Reconstruction. Okay, so so you can you can read that. Now, uh, and then also I'm, I'm going to get into some uh, of the history of the uh, U.S. Department of Justice because the Department of Justice was created in 1870 by Congress largely to protect the new rights of African-Americans. And what Jack Smith is doing right now um, in prosecuting Donald Trump is is in is is in the tradition of why the U.S. Department of Justice was founded in the first place. A lot of people don't understand this history. U.S. Department of Justice was was founded during Reconstruction in 1870, and they were founded largely to protect the new rights that African Americans were given, especially voting rights. And they were going prosecuting uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan men, Ku Klux Klansmen, and other white domestic terrorists. Okay, now if we look at, um, uh, I want to look quickly here at this. Let's see, what, what can we pull up? Um, I'm going to give you this article here. This gives a good synopsis. This is from NBCNews.com. Special counsel charges Trump with conspiracy to defraud the U.S. Because uh, on my end, I can't. Um, it's not letting me share the uh, websites. Okay. But we got this one right here. This gives a good synopsis of it. And I okay. wanted to, um, if you could pull it up on your end, that, that's fine. Because we can go through his first couple paragraphs to give us a synopsis of, of this. But I want to uh, show the actual. Um, I want to show the actual uh, indictment and, and look at the first three pages as well of the uh, actual indictment here. And screen one. So okay. the link that you just gave me of NBC News. Yeah. Is. It's yeah, it says Donald, about the DOJ. It says Donald Trump uh, indicted January 6th grand jury 2020 election. That link. Okay, I'll try it again. From NBCNews.com. It's right there. Yeah, so, and, um, okay, why, why you pull that up? So what happened was um, last Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday was April, uh, was August 1st. So last Tuesday, former President Donald Trump was indicted on charges that he conspired to defraud the country. He used uh, uh, to lead, he, 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 the country he used to lead and attempted to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power to Joe Biden. Um, the indictment 
from Special Counsel Jack Smith office, Jack Smith's office says, quote, the purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using knowingly false claims of election fraud to obstruct the government, uh, the government function by which those results are collected, counted, and certified, by which those results are collected, counted, and certified, end quote. Now, the indictment, okay, the indictment marks a historic moment for a nation less than 250 years old, the first time a former president has faced criminal charges for trying to overturn the bedrock of democracy, a free and fair election. While Trump's failure to reverse his defeat was a credit to the guard where guardrails of that democracy. The ability to prosecute him may renew the stress test on the constitutional design. Uh, the allegation that Trump used, quote, dishonesty, fraud, and deceit, dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to subvert the 2020 election with, quote, pervasive and destabilizing lies and election fraud, end quote, comes after a sprawling investigation that included testimony from dozens of White House aides and advisors raising in seniority uh, up to former uh, Vice President Mike Pence. All right, and, and most of the people who are were interviewed, most of the people who are, going to, who are going to testify, most of the witnesses are Republicans. They're people who work for Trump. There's attorneys, they're people who worked in the Trump administration. Okay, so I know Trump likes to say this is a, dem a, a Democratic witch hunt. No, it's not because like over 90 percent of the witnesses are Republicans. Okay, all right. So, yeah, that's the article from uh, uh, NBCNews.com. So people can check that out also. All right. Now I'll put it in the I'll put it in the comments. Right. Put in the comments. Okay. Now, when, when we look at this, I, I just want to uh, look briefly here at the at the uh uh, first three pages of the indictment. And then I want to go to uh, this article that deals with um, Trump being charged with violating the Ku Klux Klan Act of uh, 1871, because this is what's taking place right now is extremely important and it's unprecedented. And, and, and we're in a 2024 presidential election cycle. And if we don't adequately, if we don't adequately understand what happened uh, in 2020, okay, then we may make the wrong decision in 2024. We may not understand what's at stake in 2024, all right? Okay, so if we look here at, um, let's see, we've got, um, okay, I've got, okay, the actual indictment right here. Let me, because it's not let me, Try to share this. So I'm gonna post this link here. This is from New York Times. This is a PDF. See if you can pull that up and show that on the screen because um presentations. I don't think it'll let me share that. You see that link that I just posted there? Okay. We've got that. And then all yeah. Okay. Then if and people have any questions as well, you can post your questions here also. Um, okay. 
So this is special counsel charges Trump? Yes. No, full PDF. Yeah, yeah, full PDF. Got it. Do you see it? Uh, yeah, yeah, full PDF. Okay, so uh, looking at page, looking at page one, uh, so the counts are, so there are four counts. Uh, count number one, conspiracy to defraud the United States. We see that uh, on the right, on my right-hand side, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Count number two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Count number three, obstructions of and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. That was the uh, January 6th uh, session of the House of Representatives and U.S. Senate to uh, certify the uh, Electoral College votes. Um, and then count number four, 18 U.S.C. Section 241, conspiracy against rights, conspiracies against rights. That deals with violating the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. So if we look here, it starts with indictment. The grand jury charges that all, and I think you could zoom in. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to scroll down a little bit, but it's, let's see. Oh, I know what I have to do. Okay. Control, control plus sign should let you Here zoom in. Yeah. And control plus sign should allow you mm -hmm. to zoom in. Got it. And then, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So the grand jury charges that at all times material to this indictment on or about the dates and at the approximate times stated below. Uh, so we have the introduction. The defendant, Donald John Trump, was the 45th president of the United States and a candidate for re-election in 2020. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election. Despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. Despite having lost, the mm -hmm. defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following, uh, following election day on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there had been uh, outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won, okay, that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election that, and that he had actually won. These claims were false and the defendant knew that they were false. But the defendant repeated, uh, widely disseminated, repeated, the defendant repeated and widely disseminated them anyway right. mm -hmm. to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration of the election. Now, Trump is saying, uh, and his attorneys are saying, well, he had a right to lie. He has a First Amendment right, things like this. This is addressed here on page two of the indictment. Right. The defendant for, right. for number three, okay, for number three, yeah. The defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. Uh, wait, he wait, was, uh, wait, yeah. I, I got it. I got to pause on that one. Yeah. We, we have the right to free speech. We have the right to present. Okay. Whatever information we deem important. 
but ethics and this is just elementary ethics should say should wield on one's heart that the information that you are presenting especially when it comes to the public domain and when it addresses the lives and the uh, the lives of many people and the economy that we, we stand on it should be true it, um well but ethics the ethics that it doesn't play a part here ethics don't always play a part in whether something's legal or not whether it's ethical it is it's, it's clear they're clearly stating that he has a right to lie but what he does not have a right to do is conspire that's that that's the next let me, let me continue it goes right. on to say it, it, it addresses it here okay it says the defendant had a right like every american to speak publicly about the election and and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won the next sentence he was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election okay through lawful and appropriate means which they did there were 61 lawsuits filed okay right. All, all the lawsuits they lost or were thrown out except for one in Philadelphia. And that one dealt with how close poll watchers could be to people counting the vote. That was the only case that they won. Of the other 60 cases were thrown out or they lost, okay? So he was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means such as seeking recounts or audits of popular uh, of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures they did all of that okay they had a recount with the cyber ninjas in arizona okay they challenged the results in uh atlanta okay they had recounts in certain cities that had higher african-american populations okay they didn't have recounts in I don't believe they had any recounts in counties that Trump won. Okay. Uh, it is only in, in counties where he lost or cities where he lost that had basically high African-American populations. It goes on to say, indeed, in, in many cases, the defendant did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful, okay? So they had all these legal challenges and they came up empty, all right? Over and over again, in, in, in cases that were presided over by federal judges that Donald Trump appointed, appointed, they ruled against them because the evidence was not there to support the argument that things were fraudulent or that there were fraudulent votes or any, or or dead people were voting, okay? In Georgia, uh, uh, Secret uh, Secretary of State of uh, Raffensperger, he, he said that there were two dead people who voted. Trump said there were 5,000. Raffensperger on the call that's that was recorded, he's saying there's no evidence of 5,000 dead people voting. We found two, not 5,000, okay? Now, number four, Shortly after election day, the defendant pursued also unlawful means of, of discounting legitimate votes 
and subverting the election results. In so doing, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies because he's charged with three uh, three conspiracies, and that's laid out on page one of the indictment, okay? A, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government in violation of 18 U.S.C., U.S. Criminal Code, 18 U.S.C., Section 371. So we have conspiracy to defraud the United States, okay? B, second conspiracy, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at the U.S. Capitol building in the House of Representatives and U.S. Senate, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January, January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified. This is the certification proceeding. This is mandated by the U.S. Constitution that this process takes place. This is in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512K. And then the third conspiracy, a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted in violation of 18 U.S.C. 241, which is the Ku Klux Klan Act of uh, 1871. Okay, now uh, it goes on to say each of these conspiracies, which built on the widespread mistrust of the defendant, uh, which built on the widespread mistrust the defendant was creating through pervasive and destabilizing laws about election fraud, targeted a bedrock function of the United States federal government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election, uh, which is the federal government function, okay? All right, so we'll, we'll pause right there. So these are these are the charges, okay? There, there, are, four, there are four counts, and this is what uh, he's being charged with, okay? All right, so I wanted, I wanted to lay that out because a lot of people haven't looked at the actual indictment. They've read excerpts in uh, articles, things like this. So I wanted to uh, actually show you what the actual indictment says. And then the article that we showed from uh, NBCnews.com, uh, name of that article is Special Counsel Charges uh, special counsel charges Trump with conspiracy to defraud the U.S. The PDF of the 45 count indictment is in that article. So you can read it yourself. You can download it. Okay. Uh, did you, uh, want to go to questions? Cause then I want to get to, uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Okay. So let me, let's see if there are comments. From... Well, if you had any uh, questions. So I, I actually do. I, yeah, uh, go ahead. So when it comes to the, let's say, I guess this would be B, the conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding in which the collective results of the presidential election are counted and certified. Right. How, I mean, the fact that it was done. Mm -hmm. And this, again, may be very elementary. 
How is, of course, I don't know of, and are there any other pieces of evidence to show that someone prior to this, you know, committed this level of conspiracy? How is it that it, with such evidence that the government has already found that there's, like, what's the next step? Like, what's the next step? How is he to actually, uh, you know, pay would it, would they file time in, you know, sentencing and of course how is well you have to have a, you have to have a trial first before you can get to sentencing you have to have a trial okay. and, a, and a verdict so okay. they've had a hearing they, they filed charges they've had a, a had a, they've had a hearing uh he was arraigned they, they uh and they've had a hearing he pleaded not guilty to all four charges um now a uh you have to have um there was a protective order that um, special counsel Jack Smith wants because they want to limit what Trump can say publicly about certain aspects of the evidence. They don't want Trump to mention, see, because of discovery, which means all the evidence that the prosecution has, they have to turn over to the defense team. Okay. They have to turn over to Trump's lawyers. They don't want Trump, uh, speaking publicly or posting on true social names of witnesses attacking witnesses trying to intimidate witnesses like he's already attacked uh mike pence who is a witness and mike, mike pence is one of the strongest witnesses he's already attacked the witness he's already attacked judge uh, tanya chuckton federal judge uh, tanya chuckton who was appointed by president uh, barack obama in 2013. okay so um yeah Okay, so you so you have this. So they haven't even set a date for the trial yet. Okay, so before we get to sentencing, you have to have a trial. All right, but go ahead. Okay, um, so given this, and given all the steps that are occurring, uh, the former leader is still concerned with um, getting his seat back. Right. And even doing some campaigning from behind a secluded space. You, uh, you mean in prison? What do you mean behind a secluded I, space? I, you, you said the word. I did not. Because yeah. could, it could be in a traditional location. It could be, as some have uh, considered, maybe back at his place of residence. Right. Where yeah. He, he, can, he can still... He can still run for president from prison because there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution as of yet that uh, precludes from someone or excludes someone from running for president if they are convicted of a felony. Okay, they just have to be 18 years old and a natural born. No, sorry, they have to be at least 35 years old and a natural born citizen of the United States. So they can be convicted of a felony and still run for president they can run for president from from prison and actually eugene debs who was a uh who was a candidate for president for the socialist party uh eugene debs in the early 1900s he went he ran for president from prison okay um you know as an educator i'm always concerned about how how this looks, how the rules that we teach to young people and to younger people are 
supposed to be universal, supposed to be, you know, cover every single person. And the fact that we have a former leader who is clearly obstructing the laws that he, as the leader, is supposed to execute is not being followed. And so it definitely turns the table of what just looks like for. Well, that's, that's why charges are filed against him because he's not filing because he's obstructing. That's why charges are filed against him. That's why charges are filed against him in, in the Mar-a-Lago case dealing with classified documents. That's why finally Willis next week is going to file charges in trying to overturn election results in, in Fulton County, Georgia. Okay, that, that, that's why these lawsuits, that, 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 not, not, that's why these criminal uh, cases are taking place. That's why he's being indicted on criminal charges. That's why he, he was indicted in Manhattan because he's not following the rules. So, so, so keep in mind that while the four years he was uh, president based upon the um, memo from uh, the um, uh, Office of Legal Counsel uh, for the Department of Justice, a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. Okay, so for those four years, he couldn't he couldn't be uh, uh, prosecuted, at least criminally. Uh, he could, uh, if I remember correctly, he could be sued for in civil court, but not criminal charges. These are all criminal charges. Okay, um, I let me just give a a little reminder. So we are addressing, and this is our brother Michael Imhotep of the African History Network, who has. Um, lovingly decided that to come and chat about this uh, very uh, dire situation with our former leader and the indictment uh, of our former leader and the violation of the 1871 Ku Klux Klan uh, Act. And um, just trying to bring some critical conversations to our audiences. Um, I'm very thankful that you decided to, to come on and address this in addition to your own show. Um, right. If you do not, right. If you, mm, go ahead. Yeah, but, go ahead. but it's it's important for people to understand that what what fueled trying to overturn these election results is that African American people voted for Joe Biden. This is this is this this is animosity towards African Americans voting and using our political power. This is the white backlash that is the result of this keep keep in mind so so we we have to understand this chronology okay now it's interesting that all this is taking place within the first two weeks of august okay because he was indicted on august 1st tuesday he was arraigned on august 4th which was a thursday okay august 6th was the 58th anniversary of President Lyndon Johnson signing into law the 1965 Voting Rights Act. All right. That that was August 6th. August 8th was the anniversary of President Richard Nixon announcing he was going to resign from office the next day at 12 noon because of, of, of the Watergate scandal and the Watergate investigation. Nixon was a idol of Donald Trump. Many Presidential historians, legal scholars believe that if uh, President Gerald Ford had not given Nixon a presidential pardon behind the Watergate scandal, and if Nixon had actually been put on trial in the Senate and removed from office, or if he had been put on criminal, put if he if criminal charges were brought against Nixon, 
this would serve this would have served as a deterrence to Donald Trump. But Nixon resigned from office. He was not prosecuted criminally. And he was given a presidential pardon by Gerald Ford, which sets a bad precedent. Now, Gerald Ford did it to heal the nation. OK, here you have a domestic terrorist who needs to be prosecuted, who needs to be put in jail, who needs to be put in prison. He needs to be put in prison for the rest of his life. Here you have somebody who put people's lives in jeopardy. Here you have somebody who lied on Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the two uh, African-American women who were uh, poll workers in Georgia. And, and he put their lives in jeopardy. Uh, Rudy Giuliani put their lives in jeopardy, lying, saying that they were on camera passing a flash drive back and forth between the two of them trying to load uh, votes for Joe Biden. And, and Shea Moss was passing a ginger mint to her mother, Ruby Freeman. OK, these people belong in prison for the rest of their lives. These people make um, uh, Richard Nixon look like a Boy Scout. Because Rich, because what happened was the reason why Richard Nixon resigned from office is because Republicans in the Senate went to the White House and they said, we've seen the evidence against you. And if this goes to trial in the Senate, you're going to be found guilty and you're going to be removed from office. They told him you should resign from office. And he did. OK. Donald Trump doesn't have any integrity. OK, <laughs> he doesn't. And the only reason why he's running for president is to stay out of prison. Okay, so if he gets elected again, if he gets elected again, he's going to have his appointed attorney general to uh, stop the investigation, drop the charges, not prosecute. And if he if he gets convicted, okay, prior to the election, he's going to try to give himself a presidential pardon. Now, it's not clear legally if a president can pardon himself yep. because because most legal scholars say that you need two parties for the presidential party. Uh, uh, the, the president gives a pardon to someone else. But Trump could uh, uh, have his, he, he, Trump could have his uh, attorney general drop the charges against them. This is why he wants to delay the trial to after the 2024, November 2024 presidential election. But my thing is, well, wait a second. If you're claiming that you're innocent, why wouldn't you want the trial before the election so you can be exonerated? Why why would you want to go through the, the presidential campaign with that trial hanging over your head? Why wouldn't you want to be exonerated and run on the fact that you were exonerated? Okay, only if you're guilty do you want to drag this out to after the 2024 presidential election? You know, and then it just very quickly here. Then in, in the Mar-a-Lago case, now his his attorneys want a skiff at Mar-a-Lago to review classified documents. Now, skiff is a self-contained unit. Right. So they have this at the at the U.S. Capitol building to review classified documents. You can't take cell phones in there. You can't take right. pictures of the classified documents, things like this. Right. Well, why do you need a skiff? to review classified documents when Trump said he declassified all the documents. Okay. Then, so then, then, then those attorneys are saying, well, they need time to get uh, clearance, uh, uh, to get security clearances to review classified documents. But he said he, declassified, he said he declassified all the documents. So why do you need security clearance? So, so in this, so in this light of, of trying to declassify the documents and then asking for this gift in order to go review them. 
why is it continuing? That's what I don't understand. Why is it continuing if, in essence, if I'm saying this is red, but now I want to change it to blue, why aren't people just sort of catching him at that moment and saying, well, no, then you cannot continue to do this part? Like, that's well, what judge, I don't understand. Well, Judge, judge Eileen Cannon will, will rule on that. That's the judge in Florida. She'll, she'll rule on that. But it doesn't, the, the, his, his, his legal team, First of all, they have the worst. They have the worst uh, uh, client in the world because he keeps incriminating himself day after day. He won't shut up. That's what okay? I don't understand why we're continuing to have like to have this conversation. Like, why is it deliberating so long? Why is what deliberating? It, it takes time to have the trial. They have to set the trial. Well, you know, they have to set the trial dates. They have to set trial dates, and they have to go through the process of discovery, turning over all the uh, turning over all the evidence to. Uh, the defendants, the t to the his attorneys, the things evidence, like this. Right, the evidence yeah. that has actually been released, like the evidence that he's actually allowing to be presented. Or he well, 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 what was happening is, like in the uh, January 6th pro, special counsel Jack Smith wants limits on what he can actually uh, release, talk about in public. They're, they're not saying he can't talk about the case. They're talking about specific things of the, in the case, like names of witnesses that have not been released. Okay, we uh, and intimidating witnesses on social media. Okay, attacking the judge on social media, attacking the federal judge, things like this, right? But let's do this. I want to go to uh, uh, this article. It's a good article that that explains the Ku Klux Klan Act of uh, 1871. Um, so is that what you put in the chat? Uh, no. Yeah, it's from the Washington Post. Yeah. Oh, Trump indictment, civil rights law. Yeah, that one from the Washington Post. Let's go. Let's go through this here. Uh, okay. So why you pull that up? We got this. Okay. So why you go through that? Is, I, I just want to give this uh, background information. This is dealing with history. Okay. So we were talking about the backlash of uh, January 6, uh, twenty twenty one insurrection, right? And I was talking about President Lyndon Johnson, who uh, signed the Voting Rights Act in the law in, in uh, uh, August 6, 1965. So a lot of people say, um, uh, why do you need uh, a Voting Rights Act? Uh, why do we still need a Voting Rights Act? Things like this, right? The reason why you needed a uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act is to strike down the poll taxes, the literacy test, grandfather clauses, the uh, the impediments, the obstructions to the 15th Amendment of 1870, which guaranteed the right to vote to African-American men. And then uh, the 19th Amendment 1920, which guaranteed the right to vote for women. OK, when you when you when you go back and look at the Mississippi State Convention of 1890. All right. And I posted this link here. This is from history.com. Now, now, I teach a lot of this in my in my online classes. I teach on Saturdays and Sundays, my history classes. But this article here, how Jim Crow era laws suppressed the African-American vote for generations. This gives a good synopsis and a chronology of this history. OK, so you, you uh, had the Mississippi State Convention of 1890 and 
keep in mind during reconstruction 1865 to 1877 about 2000 african-american men got elected to office they got elected to local office state legislature in south carolina the majority of the state legislature in south carolina was was uh, made up of african-american men okay we've been going this long okay <laughs> okay it's made up of african-american men um so and you had a resentment from white southerners who resented having to live by laws that former slaves were voting on and former slaves were writing in the law and former slaves being in the state legislature, being in the U.S. House of Representatives, in a couple of cases, uh, being in the U.S. Senate, uh, starting with Hiram Rhodes Rebels from Mississippi in 1870, who was a U.S. Senator, African-American man. OK, uh, so. You you have the uh, Mississippi State uh, Convention of 1890, where these white supremacists in in uh, the state legislature rewrite the state constitution, rewrite the state constitution to impose poll taxes and literacy tests. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. To suppress the African American vote in the state that had in the majority of the population was made up of African Americans. They also imposed a felony disenfranchisement law. That's, sex, that's section 241, okay? Felony disenfranchisement law in section 241 is still law in the state of Mississippi. What they did was they, 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 they it was nine types of crimes that uh, were felonies. And if you were convicted of these felonies, you lost your right to vote. And they were targeting African-Americans. In June of 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear a challenge from Mississippi challenging section 241, okay, of the Mississippi state constitution that was put in the law in 1890. So when we go through and study these laws and study this history, we see how these laws are still negatively impacting African-Americans today. So you have like black conservatives that say, oh, slavery was a long time ago. Uh, Reconstruction was a long time ago. Jim Crow era. You, you have equality now. You got LeBron James and, you know, you you got Will Smith and you, you've got billionaires and things like this. Jay-Z, you have equality now. No, though, we're still feeling the uh, effects of this of this Jim Crow era. And these laws are still on the books. There was a, um, okay, so we have that. And then actually, if you pull up that article here. Which uh, one do you want? Um, the the history.com, the last one that I just uh, posted. Okay, New, got it. Yeah, because okay. it goes through, it shows you the Mississippi State Convention. Now, what happened was, now Solomon Saladin Calhoun, who was the white county judge who presided over the Mississippi State Convention of 1890, he said, we came here to exclude the Negro, Okay. Uh, nothing short of this will answer. When, when, when asked why they were there, he said, we came here to exclude the Negro. That was the purpose of it. So what they did in Mississippi became copied by other southern states. OK, uh, and you can scroll down. It, it talks about the Mississippi State Convention. Uh, South Carolina in 1895, Louisiana in 1898. Louisiana imposes the uh, uh grandfather clause you have alabama 1901 if you look at the uh, encyclopedia of alabama where they talk about the alabama state constitution they tell you that the alabama state constitution was written in 1901 to codify white supremacy okay right. you have oklahoma 
it's Georgia, et cetera. Okay. So they're trying to take back full control of local government and state government and lock African-Americans out of political power. When you go look at um, Florida, 1868, when Florida writes their state constitution, they create a felony disenfranchisement law. They write this into the state constitution targeting African-Americans and you would lose your right to vote for life if you were convicted of a felony in the state of Florida. They right. did this, they said, because they were trying to prevent a Negro legislature. They were trying to prevent a Negro legislature and African-Americans were 48% of the population of the state of Florida in 1868, three years after chattel slavery ends. This was a result of slavery. They feared our political power, okay? And this moment. is why, huh? Hi, I just wanna put this, I wanna show this particular link. Now, yeah. um, actually, uh, some of my, some of my um, camels, y'all know who you are, are actually watching, and some of them are actually like government, poli-sci folks. And so okay. this information is is familiar, you know, to people. It's not necessarily familiar to a lot. And so right. I'm actually putting these, the history.com, uh, the Jim Crow laws, black vote link up. It's in the chat and it's also here. And so if people want to actually refer back to it, please do so. I'm also just also going to pop back up the watch. Okay, here are the comments. I, Cause I was looking at the private chat. I wasn't looking at the comments. Okay, now I'm looking at the comments. How's everybody doing? Okay. Uh, the Trump indictment, civil rights law there yeah. as well so you know if, if watching people, the post right if mm -hmm. people, sorry watching post if people are familiar with this information great if you can roll it off the top of your head great for those people who don't that's actually why i'm, I'm really trying to do um these shows and the segment this is called politics really politician and the people because i wanted to have uh conversations or critical conversations or some discourse around what is happening around us what is happening to us what is happening right in front of our face what is happening in terms of red zoning in terms of you know, um, uh, uh, voter what's happening with voter rights and that being like rescinded, what's happening with, um, you know, health issues and health care and, and how that's being uh, taken right from us. And so I wanted to just have another moment. You know, my goal for this show is as best as possible uh, to, well, usually my shows are on Monday night, but to when people think about wanting to watch on Monday night, just sort of take a pause and say, hey, what's happening over here in Doriel's show? What is she talking about? What, what things are we going to actually learn who is who is in the know that we should be paying attention to? And so, just before we start to to do the 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 decline or, or the wrap up, um, I just wanted to remind people of that. And so, thank you to those who are watching. Please share this out. Um, if you haven't been following the news, I was speaking to a really prolific brother of mine last night. He's like, "Hey, I really haven't been sort of in tune with what's been happening over the past couple of weeks." But of course, this is on everyone's mind. But just engaging in. Um, in, in some matters that are not just pop culture. You know, of course we can talk about, and we really didn't talk about what happened in, in Montgomery uh, during this conversation, though we alluded to it. But, you know, the fact that we're going through this now is because there are certain things that have not been uh, resolved, have not been, we have not moved on. We may have moved right. forward, but we, there are still things that we, 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 so, we, we, we can talk about Montgomery, Alabama, but you got the people out like this the first time African-Americans fought back, which is, that means you don't understand history. This is why, like, I did a post dealing with this. You have to read this book right here. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible. 
the civil rights movement was not a nonviolent movement. One of my teachers, Professor James Small, told me personally, if it had not been for African-Americans with guns, there would not have been a civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was not a nonviolent movement. You have civil rights superstars out here telling the revisionist history because they get paid to do that. It was African-Americans with guns who were protecting the civil rights workers. It was, this was written by Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr., who was a field secretary for SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, for five years working in rural Mississippi to organize African-Americans to register to vote, okay, and to get them to vote. Now, if you know anything about the history of Mississippi, you know that's very dangerous work. And, I mean, that's where uh, uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, is where Goodman, Schwann, and Cheney were killed June 21st, 1964. Uh, um, uh, Money, Mississippi, is is where uh, Emmett Till was killed August 28th, 1955, okay? Uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, is where you had the Vicksburg, Vicksburg Massacre, 1874, and that was over uh, African-Americans backing a uh, black sheriff who white people were, who removed from office, a duly elected black sheriff in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1874, Peter Crosby. He gets removed from office by white people. There's been a, there's been a, there's been a fight over political power along racial lines in this country going back to after slavery ended. There's been a bloody fight over this. Okay. You, you have to ask the question. Well, if the U.S. economy is about $25 trillion, and in and, and the white portion of the U.S. economy is something probably between uh, 12 to 15 trillion or, uh, or a little more than that. OK. And if they have a 6-3 conservative majority on the U.S. Senate, I mean, in the U.S. Supreme Court, Donald Trump got 226 federal judges confirmed. And those are all lifetime appointments. Why do they care about black people voting if they control so much? Because they understand that politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, the adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. And if they, they realize if the right people get voted into office, laws can be passed that they deem detrimental to their existence. This is about the fear of the browning of America and the fear that by the year 2043, white people will no longer be the majority population in this country. So they want to control the courts. Because the judicial branch of the federal government interprets law from the legislative branch of the federal government and interprets uh, policies and executive orders from the executive branch of the federal government. So it's Trump's 6-3 conservative majority Supreme Court that strikes down President Biden's executive order on student loan forgiveness, right. which, would, which would have been greatly beneficial to African-Americans. It would have moved 500,000 African-American families from a negative net worth to a positive net worth, right. okay? For the average African-American, it would have wiped out about 50% of our student loan debt. And for a little more than 25%, it would have wiped out all of our student loan debt. Now, it would have helped millions of white people also, but it was greatly beneficial to us. When Biden added in, if you also got a Pell Grant, you can get up to $20,000 forgiven. Right. And about 72% of African-Americans go to college partly on Pell Grants. That's greatly beneficial to us. So then you have Republicans striking back. You just had the 6-3 conservative Supreme Court strike down affirmative action when it comes to college admissions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's and this is something the they've been trying to do since affirmative action became a law in, in 65, Executive Order 11246 from President Lyndon Johnson. All right. So when you understand this history, see that there are all this, there's always a backlash 
against periods of perceived progress that African-Americans make. And this is how Nixon got elected in 68 as a backlash to the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement, the rebellions that were taking place across the country, Detroit, 1967, different things like this, the rebellions taking place across the country. Donald Trump was a backlash of two terms of President Barack Obama. Trump ran on the platform of law and order, which was the throwback to the platform Richard Nixon ran on in 1968. Law and order means protect white people and lock up African-Americans. So if we understood Nixon in 68, we would have stopped Trump in 2016 because Donald Trump won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania by 78,000 votes. We had the votes to stop him. Jill Stein got 50,000 votes out of Michigan. Donald Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes. So, so as we, we, go ahead. Uh, so, as we, so as we look at what's happening um, with who's, who's up, meaning like who's on deck, right? Who's, there was no connection to what happened this past week. But who's on deck? Meaning, who's going to be running? Uh, uh, we have uh, we have, you know, Brother Cornell, Cornell West, who's going to be putting his hat into the ring, and uh, you know, who who's going, whose voice we're going to be listening to, whose agendas we're going to be focusing on, how uh, the former leader and our current leader are going to sort of be back at it. You know, the the, the new parties that will be brought to the forefront because some people are not running on necessarily the Democratic or the Republican Party. Um, you know, th there are still people, there are still newcomers. I'm not going to use the phrases that are, you know, rolling around, but there are still newcomers who are looking for a place to sleep. There are still... Uh, There's still newcomers looking for a place to sleep? Okay. Meaning... That's the, interesting. Okay. Meaning, the, meaning immigrants who are coming in and I'm in New oh, York. Oh, okay. I'm trying to be tactful here, right? Um, okay. So so let, let, me, let me put it to you like this. I'm a researcher and a, and a historian. I deal with facts and evidence. Proper documentation ends all conversation. So how many electoral college votes does it take to become president-elect? I'm on vacation. I'm Say again? I'm on vacation. Oh, I'm asking you. You're the host. I'm a, okay, no, you brought, I know. You brought I'm this up. I'm it takes sorry, 207 electoral college okay. votes to become president-elect, okay? If you ain't going to get 270, then what are you talking about? If you're not going to get close to 270, Cornell West is not going to win one state. Cornell West is not going to win one electoral college vote. So why do you think he's in there? Why do you think he's Because his ego. His ego. Cornell. Cornell, Cornell West campaigned for Jill Stein. Are you serious? Jill Stein, who was sitting across from Vladimir Putin at the 10th anniversary of, of Russia today. I'm in, putting it out uh, What there. is that, December 2015? Who was, who was sitting right next to uh, Vladimir Putin? Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who then went on to become Donald Trump's first National Security Council advisor for, like, what, 27 days? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it out. Dr. Cornell West, if you see this, if someone passes this on to you, please come on over. We just want to hear from you. We really do. I talked to him on Roland Martin and Filter before. This was months before he announced he was running because I was asking him uh, about comments he made about the great grand, uh, grandmaster scholar, Dr. John Henry Clark. And I remember when Cornell West tried to debate Dr. Clark in 1993, 94. I got the video. I have it on DVD. Oh, 
I remember when it happened because that that came about because of a disagreement they had at the NAACP leadership summit, which was broadcasted on television. Farrakhan was there, uh, Jesse Jackson, Dr. John Henry Clark, uh, 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 Dr. Cornell West. It was convened by Ben Chavis. I was I was new to the scene at that moment. Okay. I'm 52. I remember when it happened. I saw it live. I saw it live. Okay. So yeah, whatever. Okay, but here, this is what we do. This is what we yes, do. Sir. Now, post this. Show this. To, show this to your people. Okay. Which, okay. Um, which and, one? And, and, and my teacher is Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor James Small, Professor Kamahai Wapakamane. All right. But this is this is this is simple math. Are you if you ain't gonna get two, okay, got it. Uh, post that link. If you ain't gonna get two hundred seventy electoral college votes, then why are you running? You. This ain't the time to 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 to, to run for symbolism. Because if you ain't going to beat Trump, then what are you doing? Jill Stein helped Trump win. I don't know how many people want to be honest and tell you that. Jill, if you look at the three swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Jill Stein's margin of victory was greater than the number of votes that put Trump over the top in those three, in those three states. Jill Stein helped Donald Trump win. So if you campaign for Jill Stein, I'm, I'm, why? What are we doing, right? Jill, Jill Stein was polling at 4% national poll. She didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning. So why'd you stay in the race to the end? Here we go. You see it? Yeah. Now, if, if, if people do something as simple as Google, how have the policies of the Biden Harris administration helped African Americans? Most likely the first hit that will come up is this 36 page document right here from whitehouse.gov. This fact sheet is entitled the Biden Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black Americans and communities across the country. It takes you through step by step, category by category, where you talk about the American rescue plan, the $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, the no Republicans in the house or the Senate voted for the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that only 19 Republicans in the Senate and 14 Republicans in the house of representatives voted for, whether it talks about the inflation reduction act that no Republicans voted for, whether it talks about the chips act, uh, it goes through category by category, the $5.8 billion that HBCUs, HBCUs got in 2021, which is a record, uh, amount of funding, uh, uh, relief for, uh, relief to farmers, everything. It takes you through step by step. So you don't have to guess. You don't have to listen to conspiracy theorists and all this stuff. It takes you through and shows you how these policies coming from the Biden Harris administration are helping the African American community. Now, overwhelmingly, these policies Republicans voted against or they are against. And if they get into the White House, they'll reverse this. And there, and if you look at what the uh, House of Representatives is doing, no meaningful bills are passing out of the House with these with these crazy coup plotters in control of the House of Representatives, led by Kevin McCarthy. And it took him 15 rounds to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. That's that's how weak he is. That's how weak of a leader he is. Okay. So now you go compare this to what anybody else who's running for president is talking about. You go compare this and, and then the other thing that you do is go to congress.gov because at congress.gov, you can read all these bills and not only can you read these bills. And if you don't have time to read all the bills, just read the summary of the bill. They usually have a one page summary 
uh, of the bills, okay? Most importantly, at congress.gov, you can see how your member of the House of Representatives and your two U.S. senators voted on these bills. If you're a member of the House of Representatives and, two, and your two U.S. senators overwhelmingly keep voting for bills that you advocate for and agree with, why the hell would you let them get voted out of office? Like, if you don't like Joe Manchin and Kirsten and Kirsten Cinema, but you don't live in West Virginia or Arizona, you can't vote them out of office. So why would you let your two members of the House or your two members of the Senate and House get voted out of office and they consistently vote for bills that you advocate for because you don't show up because you don't like these two idiots over here. So we have to we have to understand political pressure points. We have to understand political pressure points. We have to also have to understand a concept that I teach called political self-defense. And political self-defense deals with understanding how laws and policies impact the economic conditions of African-Americans and understanding whose policies are most beneficial for African-Americans, whose policies will do the least amount of harm, whose policies are the most realistic to be actually coming to fruition. Because there's a whole lot of people saying all type of nonsense. We're going to get you reparations. Oh, really? What's your legal argument for reparations? Because... I read the U.S. Constitution. I've been studying history for 31 years. I'm still trying to find the law that states that slaves are supposed to be paid. So if you're if you're trying to say you're going to get reparations and chattel slavery ended about a, uh, what, 155 years ago and the last of the former slaves out in the 1950s. And, and if you're saying you're going to get reparations, cash payments from the federal government, because our ancestors worked for 246 years for largely for free and didn't get paid. So you're going to get cash payments from the federal government, like what law are you enforcing? Because I read the U.S. Constitution is not there. I'm still trying to find the law that states that slaves were supposed, were supposed to be paid because the whole purpose was not to pay them. Now, slavery was sanctioned by the U.S. Constitution. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, the Three-Fifths Compromise of 1787, which unfortunately most people don't understand. Article 4, Section 2 laid the foundation for the Future Slave Act of uh, uh, 1793 and 1850. OK, um, Article one, Section nine, Clause one is why the international transatlantic slave trade was abolished in, in uh, 1807. March 2nd, 1807, the Congress uh, passes the law to abolish the international transatlantic slave trade. It tells you there, Article one, Section nine, Clause one, the earliest that the international transatlantic slave trade could be abolished is 1808. So that law goes into effect January 1st, 1808. It also tells you that a ten dollar tax would be placed on every African brought into the country after the international transatlantic slave trade was abolished. The law goes into effect January 1st, 1808, which means all of the Africans that were brought to this country from January 1st, 1808 through July, uh, about July of 1860, when the flotilla comes into Alabama, all that was illegal based upon federal law in their court cases to back up your legal argument, one of your strongest court cases is the United States versus the Amistad 1841 U.S. Supreme Court case. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was illegal for the Amistad slave ship to come into U.S. waters with Joseph St. Q and the rest of those Africans from Sierra Leone because the international transatlantic slave trade was abolished. They ruled that it was illegal for them to be captured in the first place because there were international treaties 
that different European nations entered into that abolished the international transatlantic slave trade. And they ruled that those Africans had the right to take up arms on the ship, have a mutiny and fight for their freedom. They ruled that those Africans were never slaves and they granted them their freedom because the international transatlantic slave trade was abolished because it was mandated in the U.S. Constitution. Now, that's the foundation of a legal argument for reparations. Okay, but so one thing that you said at the top of this piece is that there was a 10% what? $10. Sorry, a $10 what? Tax. So the $10 tax. It's Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so what happens to that cumulative buildup of that $10 tax per person from 1808 until 18... Nothing, because ain't nobody... Because most people don't know it exists, so they ain't doing anything. They're talking about H.R. 40. They're talking about getting a, a study done for reparations. <laughs> they don't. This is this is what I'm saying. I, look, this is this is why a lot of stuff done on reparations you don't see me involved in because that that and the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866, which is in the treaty and Article Six of the U.S. Constitution tells you that treaties are the supreme law of the land. It tells you that the U.S. Constitution, all the previous treaties and all the subsequent treaties are the supreme law of the land. Okay, the the the, the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. Some of our ancestors actually got land. They got membership in the in the Native American nations of the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. They got they got cash, things like this. They got some type of, of restitution. All right. They were illegally pushed out of those treaties starting about 1941 when the when the U.S. government conspires with the five what are known as the five civilized tribes of Native Americans to redefine what a Native American is. And they stated that you had to have one quarter or one quantum Native American blood. While all these people out here talking about cut the check are not talking about enforcing the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. Now, the Mario Solomon Simmons, who's Muscogee Creek, we're on Roland Martin and filtered together sometimes. And he's the he's the attorney for the three survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. Okay, okay? Mm-hmm. because 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 Tulsa, Oklahoma, was founded by Creek Indians around 1834. Right. When, when, when they get pushed off their land in the southeast United States in the 1830s because of the Indian Removal Act signed by President Andrew Jackson and the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee and Seminole Indians are pushed on what's known as the Trail of Tears over a thousand miles. They're all going to Oklahoma. They take their African slaves with them. About right. a third of the people on the Trail of Tears were African people. OK, Tulsa comes from the Creek Indian word Talasi. All right. Okay. Now, a lot a lot of the early African-American landowners in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the in what would be the Greenwood District, which was across the uh, uh, it was North Tulsa. It was across the train uh, the railroad track. A lot of those early African-American landowners got land from those black freedmen Indian treaties. This forms the foundation of what we call Black Wall Street. But since we don't understand history, don't understand law, we're up here talking about getting the study done for reparations. If you want to study, use the 1,000 page study that the California Reparations Task Force just released and look at their approximately 110 recommendations and start crafting policy around that at the at the city, state and federal level. You don't need another study. OK, you don't, you don't need another study. I was on last uh, last November, November 23. November 2022, early November. I was on, a, uh, I'm going I'm to show you something. I know you want to wrap up, sister, but I, I'm going to show you. This is important because I hear so many people talking about reparations and 99% of these strategies out here ain't going to work, okay? And it's not based upon law at all. Go ahead. Right. I'm actually just posting um, in the chat. I'm also going to put it up. 
the Oklahoma, I went to OklahomaHistory.org publication, and this article is on the Greenwood District because you your your brain it works a mile a minute and so you're always dropping some amazing gems. <laughs> and I just want people to be able to like see it and at least go back to it in real time. So I'm putting right. Well, I, I got I got some I got some better now. All of the people, I want you I want you to understand. Go to go to my website theafricanhistorynetwork.com yes, and, and register for my online history class because we get yes. deep into all this information in my online history classes. But um, this this article right here from uh history.com the official website of the history channel now, now, they, now white people are telling us this okay now this is called nine entrepreneurs who helped build tulsa's black wall street okay now i want you to i want you, i'm gonna put this in the private chat i want you to pull this article up uh show it on the screen because i want to show you something here this gets into um they quote hannibal b johnson okay hannibal b johnson uh he and our facebook friends we've talked through facebook He's one of the top authorities on the history of Black Wall Street and the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hannibal B. John Hannibal B. Johnson wrote this book right here, Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District. This was one of the first his books that dealt with the real history of uh, the Tulsa race massacre. Fantastic, fantastic book. Okay. Because I'm in a documentary that, that, that was done years ago dealing with black wall street and i've done a two and a half hour lecture on that that was one of my sources for it okay now if you pull up this i, I posted that article you see it there pull, pull up that article on the screen share so everybody can see that okay now hannibal b johnson is quoted in this article i want you to scroll down to uh okay it says uh right okay the paragraph before the greenwood district was established okay and i want you to blow that up this is why Wait, understanding on history. Wrong yeah. one, wrong one. um no, put it in the yeah. browser. Don't Google it. I know. Yeah. Got it. One moment. Let me just get it back from the private chat. And then um, also, now, while you bring that up, so early November 2022, I was on a, a panel discussion. I was speaking at a virtual conference for the uh, Midwest Building Decarbon Decarbonization Coalition, their second annual virtual virtual equity summit and a sister named Marnice Chris Jackson, uh, who's the sister of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. I'm a, I'm a Sigma and it's she's the, a co-director. What'd you say? I said you're Soror. Yeah. And she's, she's a co-director of the organization. She, she invited me to be on the panel. Uh, so I was on the panel. There was about seven of us. There were, uh, Native Americans and African Americans on the panel. And we were dealing with, um, how we have a shared experience when it comes for like fighting for uh reparations getting treaties uh enforced things of this nature but but on the panel the the native americans they were talking about getting treaties enforced and the african americans were talking about getting a study done and mm. most of the, most most of the african americans hr 40. now i wasn't talking about getting hr 40 done i was talking about enforcing the black freedmen indian treaties of 1866. Because th these are treaties that are still being enforced for the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. They still get free land. They get free taxes, college tuition, uh, free radio station licenses, TV station licenses. They're still getting benefits from these treaties. Okay. Now, if, if but but most of our people don't know this exists. We are up here trying to get a study done. All right. Now, if you scroll scroll down, go go scroll down to the uh, paragraph that starts with before the Greenwood District was established. Okay, it's like uh, it's Here like second paragraph. Okay, 
Now, I want to show you something. Okay, so blow this up. Control, okay. control plus sign to zoom in. You zoom, okay, control plus sign. You can zoom in some more. Control plus sign okay. to zoom in. Okay, all right. Now, before the Greenwood District was established, African-Americans came to Oklahoma in the mid-19th century as slaves of the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. The term used for the the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole Native American tribes who were forced from their lands in the southeast part of the country, of the United States, resettling in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory. After the Civil War, which ends in 1865, under the terms of the treaties of 1866, these African-Americans were emancipated with some integrating into the tribes a relationship that would later provide freedmen with the black freedmen, the, the former slaves, the freedmen with their own land. Because we didn't keep calling ourselves slaves after slavery ended, which is why this may go outside of the comfort of some people's awareness. I don't know why people are calling themselves descendants of slaves because the slaves were free. They they keep calling themselves slaves after slavery ended. They call themselves freedmen former slaves, black freedmen, ex-slaves. So why do we call ourselves, some of us, I don't, why do some of us call ourselves descendants of slaves? Why do, why do some of us try to put our ancestors back into a classification that mm. they took up arms to fight to free themselves from and they didn't keep calling themselves that after slavery ended? So, okay, but now, you, right, but do you think it's, it's as a result of this information of is not so widely known and so people are only going to what is comfortable they're only going to no they they, they, they they think there's they think there's uh there will be monetary compensation by uh calling themselves descendants of slaves okay next paragraph quote the relative wealth of some black folks in oklahoma comes in part through their connection to the tribes and their land ownership, end quote, says Hannibal B. Johnson, historian and author of Black Wall Street 100, an American city grapples with its historical racial trauma. So that was his that was his new book that came out in 2021, that 100th uh, commemoration of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. That was his, his new book that came out. OK, the book I just showed you was his first book uh, dealing with the real the real history of Black Wall Street. The, this goes on. This article goes on to say the Dawes Act of 1887. This was the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887, which redistributed 138 million acres of land. Uh, and most of it was supposed to go to um, Native Americans and black Indians. But white people end up getting two thirds of that land. This is where the term five dollar Indian comes from. Okay. Mm, okay. OK, the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 authorized the government to divide tribal territories into allotments for individual Native Americans, which included black members, which included black members. Okay. As word spread that Indian territory was a safe place for African-Americans to settle between 1865 and 1920, more than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. OK, so when we look at the success of Black Wall Street, we see the origins of it going back to land that African-Americans got from the Black Freeman Indian Treaties of 1866. Those treaties are still on the books. But since we don't understand history and law, 
We are here trying to get a damn study done as opposed to enforcing laws that are on the books. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you now, we, of course, we've had like two major kind of three major conversations. Um, the violation of the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, the indictment of uh, the former leader and what might be happening. And now this um, situation uh, just talking about Tulsa in terms of uprising because black people are standing, which is connected because black people are standing up for their own particular rights. Well, we, we've always done that. We have a history. We've always done that. <laughs> right. So you just, well, you gave us like a bonus, like this is considered a bonus conversation. Can you, what is, what are, what is this specific sort of class or course that you teach, particularly on this topic right here, so that folks who are interested in just delving into that can go mm -hmm. into, because the indictment of the former leader is going to be talked about ad infinitum. Over the past, over uh, the past. well, I, I, I teach uh, I teach two classes. My Saturday class and my website is uh, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. So you can go there. You can register for the classes, and uh, we do the sessions live Saturdays and Sundays, two p.m. to four p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Then the sessions are archived, so you can go back and watch them anytime, even after the course is over. With. Saturdays, I teach um, ancient Kemet, one of the original names for Egypt, ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach in school. You can actually bring up the website on the screen share and, and so people can sure. see it. Uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. That's a 12-week online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history, what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. I do a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, we have book references, articles, video clips, uh, excerpts of interviews I've done with some of the scholars. And then, yeah, scroll down and uh, you'll see the information for the class. Uh, and then on Sundays, I te teach black resistance movements from the Haitian Revolution, U.S. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, and Black Power Movement, 1800 to 1968. And in that second, that Sunday class, we go through and uh, we, we look at this history chronologically. Uh, that class, the second class is on sale right now, $40 for a very limited time only. And we go through and look at this history chronologically from 1800 through 1968, 1970. Uh, and we begin with the Haitian Revolution uh, and the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 because the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase uh, they are related, okay? Uh, France sells about 828,000 square miles of land here in what the, what's known as the United States because they're fighting against the Haitians and they're trying, they're going almost bankrupt, right? So the U.S. and the Louisiana Purchase, it doubles, uh, basically doubles the territory of the U.S. with that, with that, uh, with that deal and increases the need for enslaved African labor to grow crops on the fertile land that uh, is part of the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, so, and we take you through our history chronologically to see what leads up to the Civil War taking place, like the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Texas winning its independence 1836, uh, Mexico winning its independence from Spain 1829, well, 1821, and then Vicente Guerrero, who becomes the second president of Mexico, he's of African descent. He's Afro-Latino. He's a former slave. He abolishes slavery. Uh, so we look at what leads to the Civil War taking place, like the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, Mexican-American War, 1846-1848, and what's known as the Compromise of 1850. 
and uh, the U.S. gets California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah, Nevada, all from Mexico as a result of the Mexican-American War. Then we look at the Reconstruction Era, 1865, 1877, Jim Crow Era, Pleasy versus Ferguson, 1896. Great Migration, 1915, 1970, World War I, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. And we highlight Black resistance movements all throughout those periods of times, whether we talk about the Robert Charles riots of 1900, where Robert Charles shoots something like two dozen people, kills two white police officers, shoots like seven white police officers, kills two of them. Uh, whether we talk about uh, Vicksburg Massacre, 1874, Colfax Massacre, 1873, Louisiana, uh, and then we go through and look at this history to see what brings us to where we are today. OK. And then we, we see this. We see this political violence. We see this attack on African-American voting rights as well. And we see an attack on us organizing ourselves for economic empowerment as well. And the cooperatives that we had, like the Colored Farmers uh, Union created about 1886, was grew to about one point two million members, you know, things like the Free African Society, 1787. So when you read uh, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nemhard's book, uh, Collective Courage uh, and a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. And this is one of the books we reference in the class. You don't. So we show you excerpts of the book on the screen. You don't have to buy any of these books to follow along in class. We have a deep, rich history in economic involved in economics, entrepreneurship, economic empowerment. And it's the cooperatives. Uh, where the members are also owners, kind of like a like a credit union. And these are principles we brought with us from Africa as well. OK, so your understanding of politics is directly related to your understanding of history. So we get deep into this in, in that second class. The first class is fantastic as well. Uh, the second class picks up where the first class leaves off. So visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, I, I showed you, I, I, I just want you to show this on the screen. We don't have time to go through it. People can read it. But the, the, the article dealing with the, uh, uh, from the Washington Post dealing with the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Hold on, hold on. I think. Yeah, uh, I just, I just posted the link here in the private chat. Trump charged under civil rights law? Yeah, Trump is charged under civil rights Got law it. used to prosecute KKK violence. This is an excellent, excellent analysis. Um, and, and, and this is, I talked about this on my Sunday night show and it talks about how, uh, it says the, the statute section 241 of title 18 of, of the U S code was originally adopted as part of the enforcement act of 1870. Uh, it was the first in a series of measures known as the Ku Klux Klan acts designed to protect rights guaranteed by the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments collectively called the reconstruction amendments. Section 241 makes it a crime to conspire, to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person exercising a right protected by the Constitution or federal law. So it's brilliant and it's poetic justice that a white supremacist like Donald Trump is being prosecuted by a Reconstruction era law that was put in place to go after the Ku Klux Klan who were trying to, who were attacking African-American elected officials, white Republicans, killing, killing us, and trying to keep us from voting, keep us, keep us from voting. And this is exactly what Trump was trying to do, trying to suppress the African-American vote and, and trying to retaliate 
because we voted and didn't vote for him. So it's poetic justice that he's being charged with the violation of this. And hopefully he's convicted. I think he will be convicted on all four charges. I've read a lot of the uh, 45 page indictment. It's a very strong indictment. And if you know anything about federal prosecutions, they have something like a 95%, 96% conviction rate. Okay. And number one, number two, they don't ever put all of the evidence in an indictment. So there's more evidence that's going to come out in court. This is damaging enough. The indictment. There's more evidence that's going to come out in court that's not in this indictment. Okay. So, so yeah. I, I, I want to give you a, a public, um, a public high five. I want to give you a public certificate. <laughs> okay. A public acknowledgement. <laughs> hear me, hear me, hear me. All right. I took, I'm, I'm a proud camel. Everybody knows I went to, uh, is it a camel? Yeah. Ride with me here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I'm a proud uh, graduate of Connecticut College, and so we are camels, New London, Connecticut. And I remember taking a, uh, a U.S. history course, and I think I took two semesters of it. So it was like before 18, U.S. before 1865 and then the U.S. 1865 to whatever it was. I forgot what okay. the end date was. I literally feel like I have a graduate degree in history as a result of this hour. Out, out. Oh, okay. I, I really <laughs> do. I really do. I really do. And I will, I will tell you publicly, publicly, if you take all the 20 little things that we've talked about, that, that this, the, I said this before, the, the articles that you brought up, and we just did an entire 45 minutes to an hour and a half lecture on that. Right. Let me right. say I would have done better. Well, that's, that's, that's what <laughs> we have to do. Back. We have to, you know, all, all, all of this history, that's what we have to do. We have to put it together. Uh, we have to make it plain, as Malcolm X said. But if you understand a chronology of history, that's and that's the most important thing to, to understand. I, I deal with uh, ye, the years and dates, things like this. But Professor Kabahai Watha Kamene, he, he mm. talks about how uh, the most important thing is to understand the chronology of events, not necessarily the year that things took place. You have to understand, but you have to understand the chronology that the year took place and understand cause and effect. And see, this is the most important one of the most important things, because when you get deeper to this history, then you start seeing right why our vote was suppressed, why they continue to suppress our vote. OK, probably the probably last article I share with you, this is one I was looking for. This this was Mississippi. This this was what's going on right now. I just posted okay. this link here in a private chat. Pull okay. pull, pull up the actual article. Oh, I want people on. to see this. Yeah. OK. Now, this is dealing with Section 241 of the Mississippi State Constitution of 1890, and Section 241 is still in place. This is from NBCNews.com. Mississippi cannot strip convicts of right to vote, federal appeals court rules, okay? Because in June of 2023, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled not to hear a challenge from Mississippi challenging Section 241 because you had, you know, African-Americans and others saying that it's unconstitutional to strip someone of their right to vote for life for being convicted of a felony. Uh, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson wrote a scathing dissent uh, against the 6-3. It was a 6-3 uh, ruling, okay? She wrote a scathing dissent against what her conservative colleagues uh, with them voting not to hear this case, right? So a federal judge uh, just ruled on this article from August 4th, 2023. Okay, this shows you how 
uh, all history is a current event and everything that's ever happened continues to happen in some shape, form, or fashion. Wow. Yeah. Uh, a a, a two-to-one panel of the New Orleans-based Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals faulted a provision of Mississippi State Constitution that mandates lifetime. This is the second paragraph that mandates right. lifetime disenfranchisement for people convicted of a set of crimes, including murder, rape and theft. And then when you when you go uh, look here at the uh, one, two, three, four, fourth paragraph, he said the state's constitution provision, Section 241, served no legitimate purpose, ensures uh, ensures former offenders are never fully rehabilitated and was adopted in 1890 wow. after the U.S. Civil War to, quote, ensure the political supremacy of the white race, end quote. Wow. This is taking place right now. This is showing how the history of the past is shaping the conditions of today, which shapes the trajectory of the future. So when you have the Florida State Legislature, when you have the Florida Department of Education, right, put limitations on the type of history that can be taught in school, okay, see, this is the whole goal. When you can, this is the whole anti-critical race theory, this fake anti-critical race theory attack. When you can suppress the teaching of the history of the past in schools, and then you can reduce the ability of African Americans and Latinos and Asian Americans to vote in the present to influence the laws of the future, then you can maintain control and you want to you want to control the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court for the next 25, 30 years. This is what this is what all this is about. And it's understanding how history and law and policies all intersect. I'm overwhelmed. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody, visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Register for my online history courses. We have my uh, uh, lectures there in digital download format also, DVD lectures. Support us. You can support us through PayPal, Cash App also. It's at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. I am blessedly overwhelmed. This is always oh, a you. well, in uh, a good way, in a good way, in a good right. way. Right. You know, and the connection to our Facebook and YouTube, the African History Network on Facebook, Michael M. Hotep on YouTube, Michael M. Hotep on Facebook, but our, uh, at the top of the page has our social media handles there. Excellent. So I will say that there are certain people, once they finish high school and they go off to university there are certain people that go off to trade schools there are certain people who just go off and and they live life and all three groups of people have a wealth of information to share and to learn to continue to learn and so if one feels like well maybe they don't feel like you know university or or, or the, the college chair is is um, appropriate for them they can come to you and oh yeah them believe they actually can get more information from you in three or four hours than right. some people get in a whole semester. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. Saying, it, I'm just yeah. saying. So I, 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 I we love have a lot of content. Uh, yeah. I have a lot, a lot of content. Um, and I'm, I'm very blessed and honored again that you wanted to have this conversation on my show and to further. Um, encourage and enlighten people. And so I'm actually just going to repeat as I do with as I did in the beginning of the show. This was I have three sort of like content foci. One is called okay. 
politician and, and the people. And usually, again, I speak to elected officials or people who are in um, legislative, you know, spaces about what's happening, what's happening, and how are we supposed to live in this environment uh, connected to whoever the you is who sits in a seat to, you know, execute, to, uh, to legislate. And then the other is called uh, ministers on a mission. So those people who are in uh, spiritual leadership and, you know, tell me what you're doing to enliven uh, and enrich the souls uh, of folk. Let me just say the souls of folk. Um, right. And then the last is a new classes in session. And that is sort of like the, the, the other part of what we're doing to think, teach, and learn outside of the box. And so even though intention in, initially this was going to be a new classes in session because it's about learning about what's going to be happening next, but thinking and learning outside of the box, it really is connected to politics. And uh, But you're not the politician, but we're speaking about people who are in politics and how that's related to people in everyday life. And so I wanted to thank you for uh, this broadcast. Thank you for this opportunity, this live stream. The live stream is different oh, yeah. from, from podcasts. I'm always going to say that it's different from podcasts because everything that happens in real time happens yeah, right here. Yeah, everything happens in real time. Yep, and we got to roll time. with it. it is different. Yep. Nothing thanks for having me, sister. Nothing cut out. Right. So peace and blessings to everyone. Uh, Brother Michael, hold on for a moment. This is a Learn to Grow You moment where I plant seeds to help you grow. I want everyone to recognize and remember that everyone here has a story and everyone here has, their story is going to be important to uh, those people who need to hear it and be inspired by it and, and be influenced and impacted by it. So tell your story. And if you don't know how to tell your story, that's why you have me as a wing woman. You can contact me at Learn to Grow You for that further information. And I will be uh, signing off and seeing uh, most people next week, you'll be seeing me sort of doing some uh, lives. I'll be in, let's just say, a different space. Uh, and those who follow me know where I'm going to be. And we'll be hearing for from some ministers, some global ministers who are doing, who are sliding up against, sliding up against people who are, are in um, precarious situations globally and uh, showing how we do the best that we can to support their efforts to live lives better. And so... On that note, peace and blessings. I will see you on the next show.